Jean. Hello, Vicki. How I'm are you? I'm so happy to meet you. Nice to meet you. You know, I, I think we've actually met like for a second um, at Molly Malone's uh, at a gig. And uh, I don't know why, I, you know, I've been trying to, for the life of me to figure out who you were playing with because you play with everybody. I uh, know. I don't know well, if I played. I might have been an audience at uh, Molly Malone's. I don't, I could have sworn you were playing. Maybe it wasn't Molly Malone's. Maybe, maybe it was somewhere. Uh, maybe it was somewhere. Ireland's 32, maybe. No, well, that would be Teresa. Did you play with Teresa and Terry? You play with Teresa and Terry. Um, yeah. You know what? Actually, it might have been the write-off room. Did you play with them um, at the write-off room? Uh, no, I played no. with a couple of groups there. I played with Daryl Leonard's big band. I played tenor sax and Daryl Leonard's big band. There. Okay, now this is wild that you play tenor sax. Um, that was not your first... Which was your first instrument? First instrument was actually steel guitar when I was... A uh, five years old. Oh, okay. Now, how did you even hold a steel guitar? How did, well, you, how it, did it, you manage it? It was on a stand. And so I would stand up and play the steel guitar you on a stand. stand up. Yes. <laughs> and and what motive? Okay. So I'm wearing my, I'm wearing my Western shirt because I know there you're you from, go. Yeah. I know you're from Fort Worth. So yeah. what motivates a five-year-old to start playing well, steel you know, guitar? My mom, my mom drug us to um, me and my dad to these uh, country western shows, and it was a circuit, you know, of country western stars. It was the absolute in the mid fifties, the yeah. absolute famous, most famous people in country music, such as such as uh, Jimmy Dickens, uh, Hank Snow, uh, Webb Pierce, um, you know. And so this Dick, was the Dick music Sparkly. you were. You Big were sparkly to. suits, and I wanted. I saw those guys making music on stage, and I wanted it on on some of that. Big sparkly oh. suits sounded good. I didn't want the sparkly suits. Oh. I wanted. I wanted to make the music, and uh, so I bugged my mom until she finally uh, took me to the music store, and and wink, wink. They gave me lessons. Don't worry, it'll all fall through. You know that the guy said, and it didn't fall through, and uh, ended up actually in a year playing on that very show with with my instructor. Oh, come uh, on, stop. You're like six yeah. years old and you're playing? Yeah, it, it was. We did steel guitar, rag, panhandle rag, you know, a couple of Texas tunes. And uh, so that that was kind of fun to make that happen. But I didn't, to tell you the truth, I didn't like the special attention and the talent shows and all that stuff. So I retired when I, as soon as I went <laughs> to elementary school, I said, my mom, I'm out. I won a Mickey Mouse watch on a talent contest. And that was good for me. And you were done? Yeah, I was done. And then, uh, you know, and when rock and roll came along and there was Ricky Nelson, you know, was singing on TV and uh, Buddy Holly was singing uh, oh, yeah. on radio and uh, Chuck Berry was playing and uh, Link Ray was playing and Dwayne Eddy. I went back to that same teacher and learned real guitar and uh, took about a year and a half worth of lessons. But I learned all those instrumentals and got in a group, uh, kind of a neighborhood group sort of uh wasn't exactly the neighborhood where we'd get together every week and we'd do instrumentals you know Dwayne and Eddie there was you could have hits with instrumentals there was all the surf stuff you know wipe out and um pipeline and that sort of stuff so um I learned to do all that and uh that's kind of the way I learned to play guitar so I learned to play by ear uh and then uh is in high school where I decided to be part of the band program because I got in the jazz band there 
which you really should be in the regular part of the band to, to get a full, you know, to have that period be okay with the powers that be. So I learned a horn uh, and was a clarinet. And uh, I played the clarinet. Did you? There you go. I did for five minutes. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I did it for more than five minutes. I, mean, I, I bet you did. I was serious with it and, uh, uh, you know, went to all state and all that sort of stuff. But uh, meanwhile, I, uh, in my uh, big band, uh, I, I learned uh, from the other players that, well, if you can play clarinet, it's about the same as playing sax, fingering wise. Sax is a little easier, in fact. And uh, so basically, I learned all the music reading habits from playing sax. That's where I became a reading musician. And I didn't really read on guitar that much. I could read the chords. But uh, when I started doing jingles, I've, I had to learn to read on the guitar. It was, but at least I had the habits and I knew how reading worked, I had the rhythms all figured out. From what and, I understand, you're quite, uh, I, I don't know what the word, you know, using, throwing the word genius around, but uh, that you can, that you have a mastery of, you must have studied in depth to did you study in depth? I'm thinking. Uh, I did. You know, depth. I studied uh, when I became a woodwind player. I studied all, uh, you know, a lot of classic uh, composers. Um, you know, Mozart. I learned a piece by him, and all the, uh, you know, all of the classics to get started on that. And um, and uh, then in the band program, learning jazz, I learned about all of that stuff. But we, we were having contests. I mean, there were contests already in place and we only had stock charts and the, the brass players in the band were listening to Kenton and uh, and uh, and Bill Holman arrangements in Woody Herman's band and um, I decided to Lon Price who is a tenor player who moved to LA also but he was at a rival high school he was writing charts for their band so I figured well I'll do that so I learned to write kind of at the same time I learned to read, which is a great way to learn to read because uh, you can figure out, you know, if you, if someone does a takedown of your solo, mm -hmm. it looks incredibly complicated. Like you, you might not even be able to read that solo because there was so much going on, so many shifts going on, which is hard on a guitar, not on a woodman. But uh, uh, I'd say that learning to, write uh, arrangements for a horn section is a kind of a good way to get inside music and you have to you have to figure out a lot of things and and then when I got to North Texas uh, which was a great uh, university that has a jazz program an hour from Fort Worth um, I uh, you know I uh, had did a few arrangements for them and uh, met some ferociously great players and so many players from all over the country come that you get to hear what a really professional sounding group is like and um, and then you try out to try to get in there were you playing in like little bands all the, what for, did yes was, you know, was this your dream from the get-go dean did you say okay i'm going to be a professional musician this is what I'm going to do. Like, did you decide that at six? Did you know I this did is what I'm going to do? I did not. I never did not. In fact, uh, my music teacher warned my parents against <laughs> letting me become a 
a greasy, irresponsible <laughs> musician. You just get hooked on alcohol and uh, being uh, good for nothing. So, you know, I didn't really look at it as a profession. It was like something I did for fun. And even in uh, high school, when I was doing all the music stuff, it was just fun to do. So well, I, what, what did you think you wanted to do? When uh, you, you know, I, did, I, I was kind of clueless. My math teacher thought that I was good at math and said that I should major in math. So I did for a year at, uh, at college. But all the guys attested pretty good in math. So I got into a pretty talented math class. Mm -hmm. And these guys on the weekends were doing alternate proofs to theorems that I could barely keep up with. And I thought, well, I'm going to be competing with these guys when I get out of here for some kind of a job. And uh, my sax teacher, I, I minored in music. And so he, he had seen me at some of these stage band uh, contests and said, you know, just major in music. And I just decided to go for music because that's what I like to do. And I decided that even if I didn't make a great living at it, it would probably be good enough. And I'd rather have that life of really liking what I do. And, uh, you know, and whatever, what come what may, as far as the money goes. Uh, and uh, so I decided to major in music and, and I majored in composition. So I learned a lot more then on my, in my second year and went to real theory, real, really Bach, uh, you know, you get inside music in a very analytical way. And and I was so happy to be pointed in the direction of something that I like to do. I didn't know whether I would be, I wanted to be a studio player. I knew that it existed. Okay, so why, do you, why did you, why did that call to you rather than uh, being a live musician? Yeah, uh, well, you know, I heard, I had a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, but, and uh, uh, my parents were nice enough to get that for me mm -hmm. when I asked for it. And, to, and I bought tape. The place that sold tape was also this recording studio in Fort Worth, and they were mm -hmm. doing a jingle, which is like a commercial with music. And was, I am a layman. I am not that much of a layman, but okay. okay. Some, <laughs> Yeah, so it's good to explain. <laughs> I heard music, uh, brand new music I'd never heard before, perfectly played with a hi-fi system I couldn't have imagined. Mm. Recording studio, and thought, and then I had read, uh, I guess in the or maybe in the Glenn Miller story or something, they mentioned mm. that the guys that had been on the road in the big bands became studio musicians. So I knew it was a thing and it existed, and I thought. Well, that's completely great. I want to. I want to do that. You're, and and I'm glad that I picked that because. Okay, so uh, wait. What, before you keep going, so it never it 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 didn't dawn on. Okay, I want to be. Uh, I want to be in the Rolling Stones, or I want to. I want to. Well, do you know that that group that, that group that I played instrumentals in. We we eventually, when things got hot and heavy in the '60s, we did learn Beatles, Birds, Stones. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Joe Tex, James Brown. We got into it, and, and and I maintained that group all the way through college, almost all the way. Um, and I was glad I did because, as I was learning more about music, got into classical music and jazz music. You know, the temptation was to spend your time there because you're learning a lot. You, but 
when rock music got really interesting in the 60s, Hendrix, Cream, uh, Birds, you know, that that was pretty nice. And I was glad that I was in on it already. And I we were completely had those songs figured out. And, uh, you know, I was kind of the guy that would teach the band the song. So I knew how all that was put together. So I was uh, I was really glad to to uh, to have maintained the rock and country stuff. How how disciplined yep. you must have been very. What what was your what what was your playing schedule like, Dan? Did you did you play all day? Did you practice all? I mean, it sounds like um, you were pretty studious about this. Well, I, I I'd call myself a bench practicer uh, when I I'm up against a job that I'm not sure I'm ready for. I binge it until. <laughs> I get there and so so you're human and you're normal okay that's yeah, good to know. <laughs> it's, yeah with I'm superhuman here. talent i've talked to guys you know i kind of i wish that i practiced every day from the age of six but i didn't um and but you know i i actually did hit a binge in college on uh, on guitar i decided to practice some technique and uh, since i had this rock group to play in every weekend I got to kind of track my progress, and uh, it. Uh, I started thinking more about my hands and positions, and mm -hmm. and was able to put together streams of bullshit. <laughs> I don't think so. That kept on rolling, and it, it it like my playing became less me. So I kind of backed off of that kind of focus for a while to get back into music i my ideal has always been you hear a musical idea and you're able to play it mm -hmm. and so that's, and you're able to sound like anybody i mean snuffy told me that you were snuffy for 10 years you basically <laughs> could play snuffy better yeah. than snuffy for well, 10 that years was, uh, you know that that was uh, an absurd kick because snuffy uh it brought guitar to the forefront in uh, music scoring, you know, especially for 30-something TV show. He basically brought acoustic guitar into a lead role and that kind of stuff. And, he, you know, he's how there. Did you go, how did you guys connect, Dean? Did you guys know each other from Texas? How did you meet? No, we, did, we didn't. We should have. I mean, he's from Fort Worth. I'm from Fort mm -hmm. Worth. And, uh, but uh, I didn't, I didn't go to many clubs when I was in Texas. I was, uh, my my folks kept me on a pretty short leash, so I didn't, <laughs> uh, I didn't, uh, and I was so busy in college because I had weekend gigs with this uh, rock group, but then during the week I was doing uh, lab band stuff, you know, and uh, writing stuff for composition class, so I was, uh, you know, I was uh, kind of too busy to, to go clubbing much, and I know. And, and I'm assuming uh, the drinks and the drug didn't get to you. What's that? I'm assuming drinks and drugging didn't get yeah, to Yeah, no, it, it didn't. Uh, you know, someone asked me, you know, why didn't I fall into the drug trap, you know, during the, all the studio mm -hmm. days? And I said, well, I think it's just lack of confidence. <laughs> well, what a lucky thing that is. What a lucky thing, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, it's, uh, I wasn't absolutely sure when I moved to L.A. that I was able, going to be able to handle I didn't know how good you have to be. What what are you confronted with? There's no way to kind of no way to know without uh, moving and jumping in. 
did you transition from sax to guitar or were you doing both do you no, i was you doing both? both i brought the sax into the into my rock band and played uh you know some sax uh, some whatever tunes showed up on on saxophone uh and uh learned to play got an organ and became the organ player on you know doors tunes and stuff like that um uh and uh yeah i always kept that going so i didn't have to transition back to guitar i was always doing guitar um i just had to transition my literacy my musical literacy to the guitar because it was a by the ear instrument but that's good for studio work too because two-thirds of studio work is not reading detail it's uh inventing detail you know you get especially you, when you work with snuffy yeah um so well, so all right let's, it's a very uh, definite uh definite things written out um and it was fun trying to be him i never uh, figured that i was being him i was just trying to 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 get his ideas done because no, he, no, he, he said you did him better than him he, he's <laughs> told me that more than once so how did you guys meet i i'm jumping all over the place you know, i have I a lot of questions met, for you i think he i think he hired me i think is how we met and uh it wasn't 30 something that was uh not happening i can't remember what the show was to tell you mm -hmm. the truth. um there was one called felicity and my mm -hmm. so-called mm -hmm. during that uh, maybe maybe that was the time um so george so what was your first we before we get into your session stuff so i just have to tell you my daughter's boyfriend tristan capel is a saxophone player he's a multi-instrumentalist and he plays yeah. with michelle coltrane and he got to play john's saxophone that had oh, not no. been played in like i don't know how many years but he got to play it this is like the thrill of his lifetime That's but fantastic yeah. so, so what kind of math i'm going to work now i want to talk to him about what kind of mouthpieces so I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna if you'll allow <laughs> it i'm gonna connect you because he would love to talk to you so uh yeah um so he, went, he went out played, and, played with he a, and bought a mouthpiece just to play oh there you go John, yeah <laughs> to play john's yeah uh, so, okay, so going back to uh, how, so getting started in sessions. So you're, you're playing in this, you have this rock band, you're, you're doing both. How, what's your first professional session? How did that happen? Mm. You made the decision first, you wanted to you do know, it after it? Um, well, no, I, there is a studio scene in Dallas. And on this group that mm -hmm. I, played in for years I decided uh my studies it was hard to keep both going after a certain while so I quit the group my last gig with the group was a New Year's Eve gig in which there were two bands hired trading off set after set so there was our our band on the other band stand was one of the up-and-coming jingle producers from Dallas and he heard me play and hired me for a session. And uh, so from that word got out, because you remember uh, the guitar players, and so this was about 1968, the guitar players in Dallas, you know, they could read anything. They were excellent players. The two main ones, Jack Peterson and uh, Lee Robinson. And, uh, but they weren't totally at home and their guitars were not set up for rock. And the jingles were needing to in, be informed by current music, not old big band music, you know, not 
even recent big band music. It needed to be rock and roll. So uh, a guitar player that could read, I could read well enough. I could basically play what I would, could sing and I could sight sing stuff. So two-step process, I could read well enough to do jingles there. And so uh, I, I got some experience doing uh, work there. So it was some commercial for uh, Ewell Box, who was the band leader that, it, uh, that we, I'd met that night. Um, so the, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it was a, it was a commercial. And, we, and that group, though, uh, had uh, recorded with T-Bone Burnett. He produced a couple of uh, sides on us at Sound City, which was the studio below Clifford Herring Sound, which sold the tape, the hi-fi store. But uh, uh, yeah, I had, uh, we continued to do some local work. There was a guy that um, did song demos that we'd come in and do. And there was a guy from Nashville that uh, would produce some things. I did some arrangements for him as well uh, with the string quartet. And we just layer them to sound like a string section. And that was at the time when uh, Jim Webb was making records with, uh, you know, uh, Glenn Campbell and uh, uh, who was the actor, uh, Take Out in the Rain, um, MacArthur Park. Oops, your mic is not on. Oops, I hit Oops. that. Uh, Richard Harris. Richard Harris. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I was so uh, I was I was uh, acquainted with the studios by the time I got to LA. And so from what I understand, a very interesting duo got you out to LA. Tell us about what got you out here. Yeah, okay. Well, Sonny and Cher. Uh, so here we, uh, the band from college then mm -hmm. got a manager to get us some gigs because we could read and play rock and roll. And uh, he got us a gig when um, it was a multi-artist uh, gig and Sonny and Cher was one of the artists. Dusty Springfield's one of the others, and I can't remember who else. But uh, they needed a band. They had a guitar player, band leader. Um, so uh, we played that gig with him. Now, this was uh, between the hippie coonskin, uh, not coonskin, the bearskin coats. Is that what? I remember what they looked yeah, like. Yeah, the bell bottoms, yeah, between right. the bell bottoms <laughs> and the tuxedo. <laughs> was a time when they were inventing the tuxedo gig and they wanted to do fake ah. eventually, eventually. And, um, and they wanted to do, there were every big hotel and every major city had a big band that was on salary and every artist oh. that came through needed a big band book. Uh -huh. and that's what they were doing. And so we were qualified to be that rhythm section uh, and still, uh, you know, play pretty cutting edge for that time rock and roll um so when he got a gig a big when uh, we played that gig with them they took my number and uh when they got a biggest gig they called me to be the guitar player they had had a, a long story short they a, a tour developed soon after that they asked me to come on the tour i said if you bring my band we all wanted to move to la if you bring my band uh and they said, okay, well, we'll have a gig in Chicago and see how your band does. Now, there was no rehearsal. We sight read the book. And maybe wow. we rehearsed the, the afternoon of, I don't know. But I don't know how they thought we could do that, but I told them we could. 
And we did. <laughs> and they liked it. They hired us. And we were on the road with them for six months. And lo and behold. Okay, so wait. So how was that for you? You're, you've made the decision to be a studio musician. That's your thing. Now you're going on the road. So do, do you enjoy the road? Did you enjoy the road? Uh, well, it was... It wasn't, a, they didn't have bus tours yet, uh, at least not, we didn't do those. We flew from place to place. Uh, so it was not too bad. Um, um, it was playing supper clubs for people dressed in ties and uh, you know, not, not the ideal uh, rock and roll venue, but it was sunny and share. I mean, we did kind of rock it out on a few mm -hmm. tunes um, and I liked the big band and ended up doing some charts for them for their big band thing uh so i i, I enjoyed it and it seemed were sunny know, and Cher getting gig. along in those days was it good times yeah for sunny yeah and Cher? But, yeah they they were getting along i mean they were uh, i guess designing their act around arguing yeah. sort of <laughs> and uh so they were making up jokes and if one seemed to stick they would leave it in i don't think they had writers i think they were winging really yeah, I think so. Wow. And uh, uh, so, so it was fun to do. And we knew we were getting to L.A. and a road gig. And it, it wasn't continual, right? It, mm -hmm. A few weeks and then not a few weeks and then a few weeks and then not a few weeks. And so really, you're getting your income. You have an income stream that doesn't depend on, on where you live. So you can live anywhere and you can move during that time, which we did. And they I assume a, you were always able to make your living from music that you didn't have to have job jobs. Yeah, that was true. Of course, it was cheap in Dallas. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, in Denton, which was an hour north of Dallas, or the college town. Mm -hmm. Rent was cheap. Everything was cheap. And pay for doing jingles in Dallas was great. So I, it, there was no, no problem at all. In fact, the older players that had advised me to go to a real, a real studio center type city new york la or nashville said be sure you have six months living expenses in cash when you go which that was lovely advice of course <laughs> six months living in denton is different than six months living <laughs> yeah i didn't quite figure that out and it's a good thing it might have helped me back but uh mm. all worked out okay but uh yeah so um i didn't have to get a regular gig. Although I didn't step right into studio work, it was not like a slam dunk, but fortunate thing happened. Sonny and I, I got a little bit of work, a little bit of, uh, I ran into a guy at the first uh, apartment that we stayed at uh, or a hotel that we stayed at who was producing a demo on his girlfriend or he was the boyfriend, a guy that was producing it uh anyway ended up being dallas smith who who uh did a number of records in that so that was kind of regular sporadic employment from him mm -hmm. but sunny and share um cbs came to vegas to see their show they had a month they finally did get their vegas gig their month in vegas and they had so they had developed this comedy routine to a certain level where the characters were pretty solid and uh, they decided to give them a, a six-show deal for the summer replacement. And Sonny, thank you, Sonny Bono, uh, insisted that the rhythm section get auditions to be- How fabulous. It's fantastic because the, if you think about it, 
you know, you have to do all of the music for an hour music special mm -hmm. in three hour, in a three hour pre-record. The band needs to know how to do that or needs to be experienced enough to do that. And Sonny believed we were and we were. And that's uh, so that became my first sort of uh, a range gig in L.A., which was a good place to show that you could do all that stuff. And uh, they 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 hired a second guitarist for that first gig, Larry Carlton, to spy on me to see whether I could <laughs> whether I could handle the chair. And uh, so he gave him the thumbs up after that gig, and uh, he started getting throwing me, uh, you know, second guitar things or things that he couldn't do. Uh, so how is that? How it works? Uh, is that how it worked for you, Dean? That it was word of mouth. It was people recommending yeah. you and all that kind of yeah. stuff. We, we yeah. did you, were you good at promoting yourself? Were you good at marketing yourself? And I didn't get that feeling. Yeah. yeah. No, I just figured if they, if the word gets out and they come, that'll be the good way for it to happen. So was it just once it started with, I mean, I, I your dis, your discography is the most re you and Lee Sklar are absolutely absurd because between the two of you, I think you have played on every single album I have ever listened to. <laughs> and you've done a lot of them together too. Um, we have, yeah. So, yeah, but so it, it was, uh, it was I, I tell you, there was so much work. You think, so Glenn Campbell had started his show, you know, and that, that was kind of done by the time I got to town, but that at least established LA as where you can, you can record country music here if you need to. Mm -hmm. right uh motown moved i didn't know that was going to happen they moved in 1971 right because diana ross wanted to do be in movies and uh so there was so much work and then the, all the work that was already there doing tv films and films and uh and record dates and uh you know record companies weren't at all sure why certain things were selling and other things were not selling so they would kind of fund everything and give everything a chance and it was all our albums so we were basically there were all these albums being funded and they needed players because there was only so many days of the week and so many studios and you you know uh, you needed guys to do it so word got out especially uh, a rock player that reads because there are uh you know there is a life for uh, a musician in studio work that doesn't read very well it doesn't read um, really notes exactly yeah sure um but there's always that date that comes up where they assume you can read and mm -hmm. that's an awkward time for guys that are yeah <laughs> not not ready for it but that doesn't mean their career falls apart because they just don't get those kind of calls to contractors and the people learn that but in a record date seldom is it all written out for you you need you to know, be able to i i've i've interviewed so many musicians dean sorry to interrupt i don't know of any successful session players that i've interviewed that didn't read I can't uh think david of t, david t walker was uh you know he could read court sheets really great but he couldn't read notes mm -hmm. a lot of the motown uh, guitar players uh, mm -hmm. uh couldn't um arthur wright wawa watson and you know uh, i i would teach some of those guys their parts you know quietly while mm -hmm. uh, they were getting a drum sound or whatever it, it was not difficult parts but it's difficult if you don't know reading sure um 
so you know there's uh there's uh, there's a number of players that don't really couldn't read notes if the part was written out but they could read a chord sheet so dean uh, for you was it was a gig a gig a gig okay so i have this gig today and i'm going to make this amount of money and i'm going to go and i'm going to do this did did you have passion for i assume you had passion for some of the stuff that you i mean you played on inner visions oh my god one oh of my yeah favorite no, no. albums of all time i mean did you did you like when something like that came along was it just yeah speaking was, to your heart that was totally special mm-hmm. and plus on that session it was an overdub um and uh, it was the only track on the album. It was the ballad, uh, Visions. And uh, they had already done the track. So I did uh, a couple of acoustics. But before that, uh, they, they had Studio A blo- at a record plant blocked off for a month. And all the Stevie stuff was set up. You know, his big, big synthesizer wall, you know, curved wall of synthesizer, his drum set, mic, ready to go, vocal mic, a vocal mic at a- every instrument. Uh, you know, Rhodes, acoustic piano, everything. And I, he wasn't ready for my tune yet. He was kind of in the middle of a inspired afternoon. So I watched him for about two and a half hours do like one pass on drums on one of the tunes. And then they, they it's all set up. One side of the console was not touched. All of his input levels were there and not to be touched by anybody. So they were ready to go and they did instrument after instrument, but on different songs. And so I got to see him do that and see the process and wow. hear what click track he was using because I was always doing tracks at home myself, you know, so it was interesting to see him do the process. And it's and I think that's why that album <clears throat> sounds so vital is because I think that these were not his first passes at each instrument on this. I think he kept cycling cycling until he got a really great drum track wow they but he didn't play more than one or two times through in in the in a day or in a session so it all feels like fresh fresh fresh. and it's all got that rollicking thing of oh i forgot that was there because that wasn't there yesterday right and playing to all that stuff you can hear him interacting with his other tracks so I was really glad to see that. So that was special after the fact. And of course, I was really glad to be on the album as well. Some and of the song, stuff- though, Songs for I, the Key of Life, that too. Um, yeah, that was an overdub as well. And it was an acoustic part on a song called As. And it's you almost can't hear the acoustic all the way through it. You can hear it at the end, it goes at the end after Herbie Hancock's solo, and we're still running. These are all first takes, by the way. He just take he just took my first take on wow on, on all of the stuff. So, but at the end he came on the talk back, which wasn't recorded, you know, and he said, take a solo. Okay, we're in B and I'm on an acoustic steel string acoustic, and I play some sort of solo. Anyway, that was fun to do. What was really nice about that is the Questlove, when he was doing the uh, Academy Awards a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. he he got access to Stevie Wonder's multi-track tapes, and he made a tape of just Stevie's vocals and my acoustic guitar. Oh! And I heard it live. I, I actually need to get in touch with him because I want to get out. Nathan East has done an interview with him. I'm going to try to get a copy of that track. But it, it, it was. Uh, I heard that version. I thought, well, what? 
well, that's nice. I wonder if that was me. <laughs> I never heard my part that clearly. And wow. I just threw it at one take, so I didn't really know what I was going to do before I started. Anyway, that was a nice, uh, a nice hello from, uh, from the old work, you know. But uh, so some of the stuff was for artists you haven't heard of. And uh, so you couldn't be excited one way or the other about it. It was, you know, fun to do. It's fun but to then, hear. Then there's Steely Dan. Then you then you're playing. There's with Steely Dan. Dan. Now they were already famous as a group. They had they had already recorded. By the time they got to us guys, they uh, it was Pretzel Logic. That was the first album they started using uh, studio rhythm sections on. And uh, but we already knew, you know, Do It Again and uh, uh, Reeling in the Years. Those were huge hits. We knew that we were in for something good. Mm -hmm. uh, it was not very inspiring sessions. Really. They, because Roger Nichols and those guys are into dry recording. Roger Nichols now, unless I'm crazy, did he write with Paul Williams? I saw Paul last night. No, did, no that's a different, that's not Roger Nichols. Okay. No. No. Different uh, Roger Nichols. Yeah, Roger Nichols was a, an engineer that had mm -hmm. recorded all their song demos because they were the ABC was their publishing company and then it became their label, I think. Uh, but uh, anyway, he brilliant uh, engineer, but not the kind of, some of the playback sessions were glorious, loud, reverb, everything juiced up to the max so that whenever mm -hmm. you went in to hear the playback, it was inspiring. And Steely Dan was not that. It was just dry. Whatever sound you had going, that's the sound you got. Wow. Whatever sounds the drummer is tuned to, that's what it is. And it was very dry and uh, kind of intimidating because there was like no help from from the from the uh, juiciness factory. None, none of that. Wow. But I mean, it did uh, make it easy to to discern for precision, which those guys were kind of into. But it, may, it makes you picky about precision just because there is no glue to glue it together. But that's kind of the thing that makes, you, you know, there's not that much reverb on their whole career, uh, all their albums, which makes mm -hmm. it, uh, you know, like a journey record. You know when that is because of the reverb, right? Um, Van Halen records, you know what the reverb was like at that time or the fix or any of those groups, mm -hmm. you know, group, uh, the Phil Collins period, you know, where things got gated and in your face but they didn't have reverb Beatles didn't have much reverb either so their their music kind of holds up it doesn't sound dated it sounds right. like fresh it sounds like it's in your room that you're listening and there's there's the guitar there's the drums there's the, the bass easy to hear and uh they kept going for good takes so everything that's happening you want to hear because it, it is all good and all uh, curated so great stuff to play on but not as fun to play on like stevie what, what what else was passionately wonderful in the studio for you mm, it was nice being on uh there's a big session for joan baez called diamonds and rust and everything on the record there was no overdubs they just had everybody that they had imagined to, they had an arranger write it up so that everybody was there. So it was all going down live. 
So that was an exciting, that's, those kind of things are always kind of exciting because it's all there. Um, uh, overdubbing and thinking of other parts to put on a bare track is fun and inspiring also. Mm. I can't say that this is better than that, but it is fun when it, it's all there and whatever you play is going to leak everywhere. And so the, you can't make a mistake, but then you, so you have to figure out where in your uh, risk, you know, what, what your risk um, assessment is for this gig and play at that level. But, uh, you know, there was one with Billy Joel and uh, uh, Ray Charles. They did a duet. And I think there was a film crew for that, too. So those are the ones that look that come up kind of exciting. Um, uh, it was great, though, to work with Dolly Parton on a few of her albums. I was a big fan of her whole approach, you know, that taking the Bluegrass Mountain thing and putting it into pop music. I was really uh, glad to be a part of that. Um, Lyle Lovett, uh, I started working with him in 1992. And so he has, you know, several, about three major kind of things that he does. One is that sort of... Uh, She's No Lady, She's My Wife, kind of a big band, jazzy kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Then he has kind of a kick-ass country kind of thing. Um, and then he has the spacious Southwest desert sun coming down. <laughs> couple living on the prairie in their house. <laughs> and still thinking pretty sophisticated thoughts about where they are in the relationship just uh, very, very great env environments to play in. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the whole rhythm section that he chose uh, for those things, it was just like a small chamber group in a way. And we kind of envelop every song with whatever we think is appropriate without too much discussion. I mean, mm -hmm. he'll, he'll, uh, he might have a discussion as far as who plays what solo when, or if this needs a solo here. Uh, so on and so forth, but he doesn't, uh, you know, he's not humming parts for us to sing. Uh, <laughs> and so it comes out as this big group improv mm. on the bones of an exquisite song that's already just fine without us, just him and his acoustic guitar and his mm. voice and the song is enough, you know. I would imagine over the years you've gotten asked to go out on the road with a lot of these artists that you've recorded with. Yeah, I and uh, you and you say yes occasionally, not often. How did uh, how did bread happen? What, what was that about? Um, I, I played on. A, they were doing a um, album called Lost Without Your Love. Uh, they'd broken up for a while, then they got back together, and this was a part of a reunion album, Lost mm -hmm. Without Your Love. So I met oh. David Gates on that, and uh, and then they were decided to tour with Bread and uh, you know James Griffin and all all the guys, and uh, they thought they needed a lead guitar player so that they wouldn't have their hands as full. Uh, uh, trying to make all of these elaborate arrangements come alive, live. Mm -hmm. So I got called into doing that, and uh, that was uh, totally uh, fun to be a part of. Um, James Griffin uh, dropped out at some part, at some point, and it stopped being a bread tour 
and, and became a David Gates tour. But, uh, but, you know, to hear him sing that stuff live, he's just as good live as he is on records. And with, was it on the records, you know, all, actually all of these recording artists are amazingly bulletproof as far as their talent and their focus goes. They, how often, Dean, are you in there with art? How... I mean, that's a big question because you've been in the studio so much, but you're, you're Barbara Streisand, Bette Midler, Dolly Parton, all these people. Are you in the studio with them or are you just doing your part when they're not in the studio? How How, um, how is that happening? Well, the you know, the ones you just mentioned um, in the studio with them, they're there live doing maybe the vocal you hear is the live vocal that we wow. did all together. They're separated, so it doesn't have to be. Uh, they could always have the option to redo uh, mm -hmm. their part, but a lot of it is uh, inspired by the moment and, and sticks. But the Motown stuff, sometimes it wasn't a song yet. It was called number 19 or something. <laughs> they didn't have a working title for it even. And it was several factions, uh, production teams vying for the single and for the album cuts on uh, on the Jackson Five and then later Michael Jackson. And so, and what was that just, like? What was that like playing on that music? I loved it. To have, first of all, I did a, my first Motown session. There was Joe Sample and Wilton Felder there. Wilton Felder was playing bass. He was a great saxophone. I was a fan of his sax playing. But then I'd heard that he played all the bass parts on those first Jackson 5 things. Mm -hmm. Totally great. Talk about a guy that could read anything. He, he could read it first time and every time perfectly. And Joe Sample. So that was actually a great day for me, that, that first session. And the fact that they were, I knew they were going to call me back for more stuff because um, that was just uh, a very fun environment musically to be in on but i mean it was highly arranged uh, usually three or four guitar players parts mm. part written for each guy mm. although they might be four stabs on the same thing you know on the same piece of paper but the producer would change most of those parts you know that was just a place for us to start and then the producer would get hands-on and change a part simplify parts make things work together better things that didn't make it is hard to tell as an arranger for rhythm things which things are going to survive you know and especially a particular player that's playing and the sound they have and all of that stuff so um there was never an artist there because there wasn't even a song sometimes yeah. did uh, you ever go into the studio dean and go i cannot believe i'm playing on this crap not really, but the time oh, it, that's but, good. By the time they get <laughs> they get a budget to hire a rhythm section in a in a Hollywood studio, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's quite a few things line up mm -hmm. to make it so that it's it might be dull and like if the, if the material is not original and and you're having to come up with original things to make it seem more original than it is. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, uh, but that's just a different task. You know, that's uh, one of the tasks that you do. And uh, uh, it's kind of enjoyable doing that. So You're you working. find a way to make it fun for you. Yeah. 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 And, and, my, and my past as an arranger uh, as well. Uh, it's like uh, most of the good rhythm section players 
that do recordings are basically arrangers and it's a community arrangement. And that's true in Nashville and LA. Uh, you get things figured out so there aren't clashes and you simplify your playing because it needs to be because everyone else has got things coming in too. So you simplify to the point where the overall is not overwhelmingly uh, uh, annoying. <laughs> so, but, and you have had the, you have gone out on the road. You, uh, yeah, you, you know, Jay I didn't, uh, during uh, the early years, you didn't mm -hmm. go out on the road because you'd lose your place in the uh, frenzy of studio hiring, you'd lose your clients and so forth. So you'd doggedly not go on the road just to, you know, just so that was the case. You remain uh, the and, first and, phone call. Hmm? So you remain that first phone call. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then uh, and my kids came along in uh, 1978. Uh, and uh, so I didn't really go out on the road during the time, you know, when they were in in school. The first probably road gig I did was, uh, of course, there was that bread stuff, but it was, that was short little things, no kids. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And um, then what was the next one? I, I'm not sure. Well, I know, know what I want to ask I, you about because you, you Nash probably. Okay, no. so yeah, so let I, I wanted to uh, uh, express my condolences to you. You were about to start playing. Well, you were playing. Yeah. You were part of this project. Yeah, that's right. It was a, he wanted to get a residency kind of a gig, you know, a week at a time in Vegas or wherever, and he put together a band and we did one rehearsal and it was great. Um, and I'd co-written with Cross on a couple of. Uh, albums uh, on his uh, recent album and on the album of Crosby Nash uh, after our tours but mm -hmm. and then 2001 Graham Nash had a new solo album I played on that and um, they asked me to go on the road so that was kind of my first modern road bus tour so okay so what was your experience with my I'm, I'm good friends old friends with Steve Postel and with Jeff Pivar oh, yeah and uh, so what was your personal relationship with 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 cross like how how was he for you <laughs> he was fantastic he was uh so there's a couple of you know i've learned from my friends that tour mm -hmm. what kind of different parameters there are for tours and it's it it can vary uh, like on the eagles gig for instance if you've ever seen an eagles show it's pretty much the record things played with a guitar or a guitar like what was on the record with the mm. exact sound and everything is there that you expect and right. love that. And uh, so that's one kind of tour. There's another kind of tour where there's a lot of support from Pro Tools, which is a recording medium. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get, where's all the, where's the tripled backgrounds that I, here i don't see triple backgrounds on the stage you know the, those kind of things mm -hmm. um where the musicians become almost uh, just part of the uh, scenery mm -hmm. and then there's the kind uh of tour that the rolling stones still do which is you count it off and you play and then you figure out how to end it and you end it <laughs> and what you what you see is what you hear and this was a tour like that but of course the music was different than the stones i was a big fan of the uh 
the spacious, spaciousness of the chord palette of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and mm-hmm. and David Crosby's, you know, his Guinevere, of course, is the obvious mm-hmm. example of that. But all of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, especially the first album, I was a big fan of. And Graham Nash, I thought, was also a great, great singer, as well. Um, so to play with them, so I would, you know, every night we do basically the same sets that we keep adding in some new songs to keep the band screwed up. <laughs> but the further out I took a solo, the bigger the smile on Crosby's face. Oh. He just loved it. He was a big, he was a jazz fan. And um, so when, you know, that that made it the f- most fun kind of tour. Because first of all, the structures are interesting to play on. They're not, mm. they're not like uh, a labyrinth, but they are nice moods and nice environments and uh, quite a bit of variation in there. And a lot of different tunings. I, I saw Steve still had a post about how oh, he yeah. had all of these oh. different strings for different tunings. Steve as it was a total hero on that. He had all mm-hmm. of Crosby's tunings figured out and had the parts worked out in all of those. And, uh, you know, it, it's not a huge amount, but there's this one tune, the Guinevere Deja Vu tuning. Uh, that's a weird one. You just have to... You just have to learn the piece in that tuning. Um, There might be a drop D on an acoustic. uh, I don't know if there were any open tunes, but yeah, capoed or whatever. Yeah, he he was all set up for all that. On the on this the the tours we did with Crosby and Nash, they toured with uh, as a duo, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, so I did a number of those in the uh, in the two thousands. Uh, with those guys it was uh, totally totally fun okay so uh, you also were james taylor's hands uh so wow how does that how does that's gotta be crazy jimmy johnson calls me and says okay uh friend (laughs) we have a james taylor tour booked for six shows in south america and james broke his finger and uh, we're leaving in two weeks. <laughs> God. Can you play his guitar parts? And so uh, I said, let me think about this. And then I hung up and I thought about it. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go for that. That'll be a load, but I'll go for it. So I said yes, and I did learn the parts. And it was too late to ship my stuff. So I just played James's guitars. They were already there. Olsons, huh? Did you yeah, Olsons. Mm-hmm. I had I had an Olson of my own. I bought one when they were cheap, <laughs> compared to what they are now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, I learned his parts. Right, I wrote out parts. I wrote out exactly what he played on the versions, or an amalgamation of the versions they sent me, and made a study of it. Because you know, he's he's another one of those guys like Lyle. He doesn't absolutely need a band. <laughs> He can sit there with his guitar and all the music that's important is in his guitar part and in mm. the melody and the words. So I kind of, I, I was compelled to represent that as well as I could. Uh, and, and and so, you know, it worked out. Uh, was that James, fun? 
it uh, fun is too strong a word, probably. <laughs> what was, was, fun, was James what was, stressed because he couldn't do because he wasn't doing he was it? A, he, he was he hadn't done this before. You know, this was not yeah. a comfort zone for him. Yeah. And especially since he leads the band with his guitar, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it, it was a thing for him. But mm -hmm. he was a good sport about it. He did mm -hmm. really beautifully. He, he uh, was not awkward in the slightest. And uh, so my favorite talk about fun, the two fun times I had on that tour were after the first gig where it was clear that it was going to work because mm -hmm. it just it just did work. Right. And after the very last one where I wouldn't have to do that anymore. <laughs> I'm here like a geek with you can see it some on YouTube. They their pictures that you know are examples of it i'm here with a music stand and the lights raining and uh i'm having to read the stuff and turn the pages and wow you know it was like a different kind of a, it wasn't like a guy up, up there shredding it was a guy <laughs> studying and, and and aiming and uh, anyway it worked, it worked out well um and it was very fun to be uh that part of that group that's a great group you know steve gadd Jimmy Johnson, uh, it was Jim Cox on piano, uh, uh, Luis Conti, wonderful group. So yeah, that was totally fun. So that, so I did, a, I had done part of another tour with James earlier, uh, a couple of years earlier when uh, Landau, oh yeah, Landau was in the group as well. Um, when Landau couldn't do three weeks um, because of a previous commitment, I came in and filled in for him on that. And uh, James, uh, they knew that I'd taken up pedal steel and uh, suggested if I wanted to, I could bring pedal steel. Because there are, is a period in James's recordings where there's pedal steel. Mm -hmm. So that was fun. It was sort of good to, you know, use my pedal steel in a a range situation with a band of guys that know how to tune up. <laughs> <laughs> Fun so, way to play. so what were you in the middle of, Dean, when when the whole COVID pandemic thing started and how impacted were you? I mean, the fact that you're a session guy, I would assume you were able to play all through the pandemic. You have a home studio, I assume, and can yeah, do all of that. Yeah, I've had a home studio since that reel-to-reel -reel recorder I had mm -hmm. in junior high school. Yeah, I've, I've had something going at home. Yeah, and, I, and I've done tracks, um, you know, overdubs for people um, all along. So I've got into it even more during the lockdown. Did it? Wait, did you? Did was there nothing at the beginning, or were you just keep? Did you just keep working? There was kind of nothing at the beginning because mm -hmm. uh, you know the lockdown happened. If you remember L.A., it was like two straight rainy weeks went on the on the lockdown weeks. Mm -hmm. There was just like nothing going on at all. I got into talk about practice i got into practice during the during the lockdown mm -hmm. and uh there's so much practice materials available on the internet i got my saxes out got them kind of uh rolling uh um got my chops up a little bit on those uh worked on a little new right hand uh, approach that i found online and uh i just figured well this is a good time for me to uh do some uh catch up on on technique work that I hadn't worked on 
Yeah, I, I don't think a lot of grass grows under you uh, too much. So I was just looking at your discography for the last like year, and it's almost as long as some artists have for their lifetime. But so recent, so the Fablemans, you just did the Fablemans, yeah? Yeah, I'm not sure my part in that. It was for two guitars, and I think uh, it's it's yeah, it's it, there was very little for guitar in uh, that thing. But uh, it was nice to hear brand new John Williams music mm. in the room with the string players, mm. which I was there for probably two days of double sessions before our little cue came up. And uh, yeah, that's always great to hear. So since I'm an arranger and a composer to a degree, it was uh, great to hear how his mind wraps itself around a theme and changes the approach for various emotions and work that a film music has to do. It's a beautiful score. And so also recently, Herbie Hancock, Lyle Lovett, Willie Nelson, Teresa James, all, all of this you've done in, in, in this last year or so. Yeah, um, Lyle, the Lyle record was, uh, we were working on that. It wasn't, we didn't actually quite finish it, but we'd done most of the tracking for that. And then the lockdown happened probably the next month. It was winter and very cold in Nashville and the lockdown happened in January, I think. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that was very recent. Uh, um, Teresa, uh, her album, I, that was an overdub solo here. So that was a lockdown piece. Um, and uh, Leanne Rimes did an album and uh, they sent me some stuff and I did tracks for that. And... Um, yeah, so that that was recent. So what's going on now, Dean, and and what uh, what's coming up for you? I, I know you're gonna yeah. So tell us tell us what's on your plate. Oh, uh, my plate meaning day after tomorrow we start rehearsing for this Grammy, uh, the uh, premiere ceremony. Nice. And, and it's uh, so that is a thing that you could see streaming online. It's not televised, mm. but it's most of the Grammy awards are given out at that three-hour show and, and who's in that band dean um not sure about the drummer it had been vinnie caliuta um i haven't looked to see who they're in it had been lee sklar that's who it usually is uh andrew i think lee's going out with with lyle though isn't he i think he's i uh, yeah i don't mm -hmm. i think maybe he's not in on i don't know mm -hmm. who's on bass uh che che alara is the uh keyboard player and the arranger and the leader for that uh four saxes uh string quartet but it's a it's a funny show for us there's a couple there's a few artists uh and we do production uh music for them and they do their their song so that that uh, that's four pieces but the other 75 pieces are us doing sound alike knockoffs of various hits throughout the, the the season as playoffs and play ons to the winners and the presenters and so it's uh it's it's a fun yet frantic gig where you're uh, all dressed up playing uh, rock written rock and roll music <laughs> and sounding like the records it's uh, it's fun to do i enjoy it we've done it a few years now in a row so 
you've got that going on. And I know that you do play out live because we asked you before we went. So you do play around LA once in a while, yeah? Yeah, I did. Greg Matheson put a group together. We played at the Baked Potato last uh, couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago. That was fun. I, I brought my sax and did a couple of songs on sax on that one too. Oh, Tristan would love to see that. And, and you're going to be back there, yes? Yeah, we're going to be back there in March and April. Okay, well, Snuffy and I are going to come check that out. Yeah, do that. Uh, um, I did, uh, there was a pretty interesting gig I did in France a couple of months ago. Uh, south of France, uh, Manu Cachet put together the rhythm section, and it was a, a famous songwriter from France that I hadn't met before, but he's a very talented uh, Michel um, Jonas. Um, so that was fun to do a tracking date for them. Um, what else did I do live? Oh yeah, I did Carrie Kirkland, uh, Shelley Bird, great piano player and arranger, uh, produced an album for this great new jazz singer, Carrie Kirkland. We did uh, Catalina last week. So that was fun to do live. Yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of getting out to do the live live thing you know i'm you know a little bit a little bit worried about covid but then a little bit uh you know you in a small gathering like the baked potato or a bigger one like at catalina with the high ceiling figure mm -hmm. yeah, yeah there is a chance that it's floating around but really your chances and numbers are less so you take your chances and have you had it dean I had it uh, once on a travel to uh, Spain, and I was fairly sick for three days and then not at all for the rest oh. of the time. But uh, I mean, that did give me a little, as I understand, a little immunity for the you know few months past. Do you think? Do you think you got it on, in the airport or on a plane? That's this is what. No, I'm I think it was. I think it was a gathering in a low ceiling place with too mm. many people. And I, I had been wearing my mask on and elevators and all of that stuff, but uh, that didn't work against uh, that gathering. But, you know, no one else there got it that I know of. Uh, so, you know, who, who, I don't specifically know where I got it. But uh, so far, so good on the rest of life. Well, it sounds wonderful, and I'm I'm so happy to have gotten to know you a little bit, and I so look forward to hearing you play live. Thank you so much for all the music that um, oh, that you've filled the years with, and uh, and continue to. And I look forward My to pleasure. so much more. It was lovely to meet you, Dean. Have a wonderful rest of your day. I look Thank forward you. to meeting you in person. Nice to meet you too, and I hope we meet soon. Thank you. Take care, Dean. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah.